President Kimball, as this conference comes speedily to its close, I feel the words of the Apostle Peter reflect the feelings of each person who has attended the conference or who has listened or viewed the proceedings. When he came from the Mount of Transfiguration, he said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. It is good for all of us to have been here. I pray that the same sweet spirit which has prevailed will continue with me as I respond to this opportunity to address you. Not too many years ago, I drove with a friend along the freeway which connects downtown Manhattan, New York, with suburban Westchester. My friend pointed out to me some of the areas of historical significance along the way, this pathway where man has rather indiscriminately just constructed his ribbon of highway right through history. And then suddenly, like an old friend, there loomed into view Yankee Stadium. Here it was, the Stadium of Champions, the home of my boyhood heroes. Indeed, what American boy has not idolized those who have before huge throngs played superbly well a game of baseball? Being winter, the parking lot was deserted. Gone were the cheering crowds, the ticket takers, the peanut vendors. Lingering still were the memories. Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio. The record of their prowess and skill is forever safe, for they have been elected to the prestigious Baseball Hall of Fame. As with baseball, so with life. In the inner consciousness of each one of us is a private Hall of Fame reserved exclusively for those leaders who have influenced our lives for good. Not many of those individuals who have exercised civil authority over us from childhood to adulthood find their names on that honor roll. This is because I feel that entry on that roll does not depend upon the outward trappings of power or an abundance of this world's good. Rather, those whom we admit to the private sanctuary of our reflective meditation are those individuals who have been able to set our hearts afire with truth, who have been able to convince us that obedience to duty is the very essence of manhood, and who have been able to transform some routine occurrence into a vista whereby we see the person we aspire to be. Let us pretend for a moment that you and I represent the final qualifying judges through whom every entry to a Hall of Fame must pass. Whom would you nominate? Whom would I nominate? The competition is severe. The list of applications is long. First, I would place in nomination the name of the man Adam, the first person to live upon the earth. His citation comes from Moses, and Adam was obedient unto the commandments of the Lord. Adam qualifies. For sheer perseverance, you and I would have to nominate that honest and upright man, Job, though he was tried like almost no other. He declared, My witness is in heaven, and my record is on high. Though my friends scorn me, 
yet mine eye poureth out tears of gratitude to God. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Job qualifies. Every Christian would nominate the man Saul, better known as Paul the Apostle. His sermons are like manna to the Spirit, his life an example for you and for me. Who of us, for example, has not thrilled with the courage of Paul's testimony to the Romans? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul qualifies. I next nominate Simon Peter. His experience with the Savior was most unique. You remember when the Master appeared to his disciples along the shore of Caesarea Philippi? He asked them a question. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they answered, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, others Elias, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The Savior responded, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter qualified. At yet another time and another place, we thrill with the response of courageous Nephi, who said, I will go and do the thing which the Lord hath commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them, that they might accomplish the thing which he hath commanded them. Nephi qualifies. I next place in nomination the name Joseph Smith. His testimony, his trust, his courage, all merged together that morning on the way to Carthage and martyrdom. He declared, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer morning, for I have a conscience void of offense toward God and towards all men. He sealed his testimony with his blood. Joseph qualifies, and enlisting my heroes and our heroes, let us not overlook our heroines. I nominate beloved Ruth, that classic example of fidelity. Though she had lost her husband, yet she empathized with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who had lost each of her sons. And Ruth said to her, Entreat me not from following thee, or to return from following after thee. But whithersoever thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge, and thy people will be my people, and thy God my God. Ruth's actions followed her words. She qualifies. I next name a descendant of Ruth, Mary of Nazareth, destined to become the mother of the only perfect man ever to live. Her response to her sacred assignment is a hallmark of humility. Mary said, Behold thy handmaid, be it unto me according to thy word. Mary qualifies. Well might you say, What is it that makes of these men heroes and these women heroines? And I would answer, An abiding trust in an all-wise heavenly Father and a testimony, even a knowledge, concerning the sacred mission of a divine Savior.
This knowledge is like a golden thread woven through the very fabric of their lives. Who is this King of Kings, this Savior, for whom such men and women willingly served and many valiantly died? He is the Son of God. He is our elder brother. He is our Redeemer. His birth was foretold by prophets. Heavenly angels announced his coming. To shepherds abiding in the fields came the glorious pronouncement, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For behold, unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The scripture records that Jesus grew, waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Baptized of John in the river Jordan, he commenced his earthly ministry. To the sophistry of Satan, he turned his back. To the duty designated by God his Father, he inclined his ear, turned his face, pledged his heart, and gave his life. And what a selfless, sinless life it was. Jesus labored. Jesus loved. Jesus taught. Jesus testified. Jesus forgave. Jesus healed. On a cruel cross, Jesus died. From a borrowed sepulcher to eternal life, Jesus came forth. Jesus of Nazareth, the only name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved, has singular place in every hall of fame. Again, you might ask, what is the purpose of such a list of illustrious men and women? And I quickly answer, when we obey as did Adam, when we persevere as did Job, teach as did Paul, testify as did Peter, Respond as did Nephi, give as did Joseph, serve as did Ruth, submit as did Mary, and live as did Christ. All power is ours. We are born anew. Cast off forever is the old self, and with it defeat, destruction, despair. To a newness of life we come forth, a life of hope and purpose and real meaning. No responsibility is too great. No task is a trial. No duty is a burden. All things become possible. As an example, I turn not to lives long lived or time long past. I turn to a young man, a young man who presides as a bishop over one of the congregations, a ward here in Salt Lake City. His name is Craig Sudbury. Some few years ago, he and his mother came to my office. Craig had been called to serve as a missionary in the southern part of Australia. I had known the family many years. Noticeably absent in the room was Craig's father, Fred. You see, he did not believe, as did Craig or Craig's mother. He was not a member of the Church. At the conclusion of our visit, Craig turned to me, his mother turned to me, and from their eyes I received a sermon of a thousand words. 
Then Craig spoke, and he said, What can I do to bring the light of the gospel into the life of my Father? Oh, I pleaded with our Heavenly Father for inspiration, and he did not leave my plea unanswered. I said to Craig, Serve the Lord with all your heart. Be obedient to your sacred calling. Write a letter home to your parents every week of your mission. And on occasion, write a letter just to Dad. Tell him of the joy that comes to people when they accept the truth. Let him know that you are grateful to be his son and proud that he is your father. I wasn't to see Craig's mother for about 18 months, and then one day she dropped in at the office and, in sentences punctuated by tears, told me her story. She said Craig had done well in the mission field. He had written a letter home every week of his mission and occasionally to his father. But two nights before, a miracle of miracles occurred. Her husband of 25 years, Fred Sudbury, stood to his feet in a testimony meeting and said to the people of his ward, You all know that I am not a member of the Church. You know that occasionally I have been a little critical of the Church. You also know that our son, our only child, is a missionary in far-off Australia. His mission has changed my life. His letters have transformed my soul. Let me share one with you. And then he read, Dear Dad, Today we presented to a choice family the truths contained in the plan of salvation. Oh, Dad, if you could have seen the joy that came to the eyes of that husband and wife when they knew that there was a way whereby they could have their children for eternity as well as for time. Oh, Dad, I love you and Mom with all my heart. And more than anything else, I desire to be with you in the celestial kingdom of God. Dad, it wouldn't be the celestial kingdom for me if you were not there. I love you, Dad. I'm grateful to be your son. I'm proud that you're my father. Fred Sudbury's eyes kind of glistened through tears. A little frog crept into his throat. And then he said to the folks, I've made my decision to become a member of the Church. Since my son has been on his mission, I've been reading the Book of Mormon on the sly. <laughs> and then he turned to his beloved companion and said, Dear, will you come with me to Australia in six months' time so that I might be our son's final baptism in that land. The willing service of a missionary, coupled with the help of a loving Heavenly Father, had produced a miracle. His responsibility, even his charge and challenge, to communicate with one whom he loved, even his father, had been made more difficult by the vast distance which separated between them. But love overcame that barrier and heart spoke to heart in a divine dialogue of truth. No hero stood so tall as did Craig Sudbury in far-off Australia when, dressed in white, 
He took his dear father by the hand, he too being dressed in white, and escorted him into the waters of baptism. He raised his arm to the square, and he repeated those sacred words, Fred Sudbury, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. The prayer of a mother, the faith of a father, the service of a son, had brought forth the miracle of God. Father, mother, son, each one qualifies for a very special Hall of Fame. My prayer today is that each of them and all of us may so live as to merit the promised blessing of the Lord when he said, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward and eternal shall be their glory. Our place in an everlasting and eternal Hall of Fame, will thereby be assured. This is my earnest plea, as I leave with you my witness, that Jesus is the Christ, the author of our salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, amen. I remember vividly my first view of an iceberg. In 1937, Sister Kimball and I made our first crossing of the Atlantic by steamer from Montreal out through the St. Lawrence River and into the North Atlantic. One day, when we were well out into the ocean, there was excitement on the ship. An iceberg had been sighted. Most of the passengers rushed to the deck to see this sight. We could see it in the distance, a great white object against the dark sea and the azure of the sky. There it floated quietly in the water like a sharp peak of a high mountain range, a thing of beauty to behold. All my life I'd heard about them, and now for the first time it was there before my eyes a sharp mountain peak of ice. This recalled to our minds the tragic sinking of the Titanic ship of the White Star Line on its maiden trip across the ocean. The huge iceberg collided with this large new ship late in the evening, April 14, 1912. 1,503 persons, many of them eminent in Britain and in the United States, were drowned as the ship sank and only 703 were saved. Then, four years ago, flying from England to the United States, we passed over Greenland and saw them again. Much of our trip, we had traveled above the blanket of clouds, but as we flew over Greenland, the sky was clear and free of clouds. The sun shone brightly. Seldom does the human eye ever see such beauty and grandeur. Stretching out in the distance was the mile-thick blanket of ice over the great domed island. We saw the thick glaciers creeping slowly down the valleys to the sea. 
where they broke off, break off and became icebergs. The fjords were full of floating mountains of ice drifting on their way to the ocean. Here was the birthplace of countless such icebergs as we had seen 33 years earlier. The icebergs spawned by the Greenland ice sheet followed a highly predictable course. As the silent Labrador current ceaselessly moves to the south through Baffin Bay and Davis Strait, it takes with it these mountainous icebergs, even against the force of the winds and the waves and the tides. Currents have much more power to control its course than the surface wind. And we compared this conflict of the Earth's powers with the results in our own lives when the current of our life as defined and developed in the lives of a family by the righteous teaching of parents will often control the direction children will go in, in spite of the waves and winds of numerous adverse influence of the world of error. Out of our view under the ocean waves, there are forces of tremendous power with which we must reckon, and there are such forces, powerful forces in our own lives. The mighty Mississippi River is a rivulet in comparison with the great ocean streams. One of the most spectacular of all that is said to be the Labrador Current. The second most powerful is the Gulf Stream which carries warm water from the eastern portion of the Gulf of Mexico parallel to the eastern coast of the United States and across the Atlantic to, the, to warm the shores of Europe. The Gulf Stream carries as much water as a thousand Mississippi rivers combined. Though of lesser magnitude, the Labrador Current year after year carries thousands of icebergs down from their birthplace in Greenland faithfully, steadily, until they disintegrate or melt in the warmer waters of the Gulf Stream. It's at this point where the Labrador Current meets the Gulf Stream that the Titanic met its fate. It is true of us, as of icebergs, that our course is an an important measure determined by forces we only partly perceive. It is true also, however, that we are more like ships than icebergs. We have our motive power, and if we're aware of the currents, we can take advantage of them. Accordingly, if we can create in our families a strong, steady current flowing toward our goal of righteous life, we and our children may be carried forward in spite of the contrary winds of hardship, disappointment, temptations, and fashion. Youth and adults are subjected to so many swirling winds that we sometimes wonder if they can survive. The winds of fashion push those about who are insecure and who require the feeling that they are in. The winds of sexual temptation drive some to destroy their marriage or to dash bright prospects or to degrade themselves. Bad companions, addicting drugs, the arrogance of profanity, the slew of pornography, all these and more act as influences pushing us 
if we are not being carried forward by a strong, steady current toward the righteous life. The current of our lives should be determined and made strong by our parental and family life. And each of us is the potentiality to become a god, pure, holy, true, influential, powerful, independent of earthly forces. We learn from the scriptures that we each have eternal existence, that we were in the beginning with God. That understanding gives to us unique sense of man's dignity. I've sometimes seen children of good families rebel, resist, stray, sin, and even actually fight God. In this, they bring sorrow to their parents who've done their best to set in movement a current and to teach and live as examples. But I've repeatedly seen many of these same children after years of wandering mellow, realize what they've been missing, repent, and make great contribution to the spiritual life of their community. The reason I believe this can take place is that despite all the adverse winds to which these people have been subjected, they've been influenced still more and much more than they realized by the current of life in the homes in which they were reared. When in later years they feel a longing to recreate in their own families the same atmosphere that which they enjoyed as children, they're likely to turn to the faith that gave meaning to their parents' lives. There's no guarantee, of course, that righteous parents will succeed always in holding their children, and certainly they may lose them if they do not do all in their power. The children have their free agency. But if we as parents fail to influence our families and set them on the straight and narrow way, then certainly the waves and the winds of temptation and evil will carry the posterity away from the path. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart therefrom. What we do know is that righteous parents who strive to develop wholesome influences for their children will be held blameless at the last day, and that they will succeed in saving for celestial glory with them most of their children, if not all. The competition for our souls is described in Messiah. For the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. The natural man is the earthy man, who has allowed rude animal passions to overshadow his spiritual inclinations. Some years ago, when we visited overseas, where the children are exposed in a public school to a constant barrage of propaganda against religion, I asked leaders of the church how they were able to hold their children to the church and keep them in the faith. They said, we scrupulously train our children in our homes so they know truth from error 
that when they go to school, the godless philosophies to which they're exposed simply run off without penetrating. Our children love and trust us and remain true to the faith. God bless such selfless, faithful parents. A beginning is a secure marriage where there is a commitment to make the personal adjustments to live together forever. With that sound base, our children have a feeling of peace. Analysts of our modern time point out that in fast-growing world, people suffer a kind of shock from losing a sense of continuity. The very mobility of our, our society means that our children are often moved from place to place and lose close contact with the extended family of grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, and longtime neighbors. It's important for us to cultivate in our own family a sense that we belong together eternally, that whatever changes outside our home, there are fundamental aspects of our relationship which will never change. We ought to encourage our children to know their relatives. We need to talk of them, make effort to correspond with them, visit them, join family organizations, etc. How long has it been, we ask, since you took your children, whatever their size, in your arms and told them that you love them and are glad that you can, they can be yours forever? How long has it been since you husbands or wives purchased an inexpensive gift as a surprise for your spouse for no other reason than just to please? How long has it been since you brought home a rose or baked a pie with a heart carved in the crust? or did some other thing to make life more aglow with warmth and affection. If there's to be a contribution to the building fund or the Red Cross or a Saturday morning spent helping the elders quorum paint a widow's house, make sure the children are aware of it. And if it is feasible, let them have a share in the decision-making and in the impl implementation of the decision. All the family could attend the baptism, confirmation, and ordination of a member of the family. All of the family could root for a son who's on the ball team. All meet regularly in home evenings, at mealtime, at prayer time. Perhaps all of the family could pay tithing together, and each learns by precept and example the beautiful principle. The home should be a place where reliance on the Lord is a matter of common experience, not reserved for special occasions. One way of establishing that is by regular, earnest prayer. It is not enough just to pray. It is essential that we really speak to the Lord, having faith that he will reveal to us as parents what we need to know and do for the welfare of our family. It has been said of some men that when they prayed, a child was likely to open his eyes to see if the Lord were really there. So personal and direct was the petition. A child leaving to go away to school or on a mission, a wife suffering stress, a family member being married or desiring guidance in an important decision. All these are situations in which the father in exercise of his patriarchal responsibility, can bless his family. And we should not overlook the fact that, particularly in the absence of the father, 
A mother may pray with her children and call down the Lord's blessings upon them. She does not act by virtue of the priesthood conferred upon her, but by virtue of her God-given responsibility to govern her household in righteousness. There's one important way in which we are different from icebergs. We have motive power, and are therefore able, same as with ships, to move them as we might want them to go. If we're aware of the currents, we can take advantage of them. Many large oil tankers and ore carriers traveling from South America to harbors on the Atlantic seaboard are said to ride the Gulf Stream much as airliners ride the jet stream high above the earth. Or if we wish to fight the current, we may be able to do so. Yet the current will inevitably have its effect. It is said that when Admiral Perry was traveling toward the North Pole, he found himself on a great ice floe as large as an island, that as he moved northward toward the pole with his dogs, the floe was bearing him southward even faster by the current. My brothers and sisters, the home is our peculiarity. The home, the family, is our base. And this we've heard much about through this conference. That's the life, family life, home life children and parents loving each other and dependent upon each other. That's the way the Lord planned for us to live. Now in conclusion of this great conference, which has spread through three days and has brought us many thoughts, we bless these brethren who have contributed, all of them who have spoken, who have brought treasures of knowledge and much information and great inspiration to us here. As we return to our homes, brothers and sisters, I hope we will not close the door on the conference. Take it with us. Take it home with us. Tell our families about it perhaps some to report in sacrament meetings of it. But take it to your families and give them the benefit of any inspiration that might have come to you, any determinations to change your lives and make them more acceptable to your Heavenly Father. As this conference concludes, we bless you. And we bring to you the blessings of the Lord of heaven. Brethren and sisters, I know that this is the work of the Lord. You haven't come these long distances for nothing. It's to feed your souls. I know that the Lord lives, that God who was with Adam, that God who came to the banks of the Jordan River to say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, to introduce his son to a world that was to depend so completely on him. I know that was the God that we worship, 
who came on the Mount of Transfiguration and uh, said again to those servants, Peter, James, and John, who were to carry on the work of the Lord even in their imperfections. And he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The same God we know he lives and exists who came in the state of New York and said those same things as he had already said to the Nephites and now said to a world that had been traveling in darkness for a long, long time, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. I know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I know that. And I know that the gospel which we teach is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church to which we belong is the church of Jesus Christ. And it teaches his doctrines and his policies and his programs. And I know that if all of us will live the program, as he has given it to us and will continue to give it to us, that all the blessings promised will be ours. Now God bless you, and we leave his blessings with you, with our affection, our appreciation for you, in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.